welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. It's been a while since we've done a Bret Hart story, and I have a great one for you today. It's called The Mermaid of Lighthouse Point. Hope you enjoy it. Some 40 years ago, on the northern coast of California, near the Golden Gate, stood a lighthouse of a primitive class, since superseded by a building more in keeping with the growing magnitude of the adjacent port. It attracted little attention from the desolate shore, and, it was alleged, still less from the desolate sea beyond. A gray structure of timber, stone, and glass, it was buffeted and harried by the constant trade winds, baked by the unclouded six-month sun, lost for a few hours in the afternoon sea fog, and laughed over by circling gullimots from the Farallones. It was kept by a recluse, a preoccupied man of scientific taste, who, in shameless contrast to his fellow immigrants, had applied to the government for the scarcely lucrative position as a means of securing the seclusion he valued more than gold. Some believed that he was the victim of an early disappointment in love, a view charitably taken by those who also believed that the government would not have appointed a crank to a position of responsibility. Howbeit, he fulfilled his duties, and, with the assistance of an Indian, even cultivated a small patch of ground beside the lighthouse. His isolation was complete. There was little to attract wanderers here. The nearest mines were 50 miles away. The virgin forest on the mountains inland were penetrated only by sawmills and woodmen from the bay settlements, equally remote. Although by the shoreline the lights of the great port were sometimes plainly visible, yet the solitude around him was peopled only by Indians, a branch of the great northern tribe of root diggers, peaceful and simple in their habits, as yet undisturbed by the white man, nor stirred into antagonism by aggression. Civilization only touched him at stated intervals, and then by the more expeditious sea from the government boat that brought him supplies. But for his contiguity to the perpetual turmoil of wind and sea, he might have passed a restful Arcadian life in his surroundings, for even his solitude was sometimes haunted by this faint reminder of the great port hard by that pulsated with an equal unrest. Nevertheless, the sands before his door and the rocks behind him seemed to have been untrodden by any other white man's foot since their upheaval from the ocean. It was true that the little bay beside him was marked on the map as Sir Francis Drake's Bay, tradition having located it as the spot where that ingenious pirate and empire maker had once landed his vessels and scraped the barnacles from his adventurous keels. But of this, Edgar Pomfrey, or Captain Pomfrey, as he was called by virtue of his half-nautical office, had thought little. For the first six months he had thoroughly enjoyed his seclusion. In the company of his books, of which he had brought such a fair store that their shelves lined his snug corners to the exclusion of more comfortable furniture, he found his principal recreation. Even his unwanted manual labor— the trimming of his lamp and cleaning of his reflectors, and his personal housekeeping, in which his Indian help at times assisted, he found a novel and interesting occupation. For outdoor exercise, a ramble on the sands, a climb to the rocky upland, or a pull in the lighthouse boat, amply sufficed him. Crank, as he was supposed to be, he was sane enough to guard against any of those early lapses into barbarism which marked the lives of some solitary gold miners. His own taste, as well as the duty of his office, kept his person and habitation sweet and clean, and his habits regular. 
even the little cultivated patch of ground on the lee side of the tower was symmetrical and well-ordered. Thus the outward light of Captain Pomfrey shone forth over the wilderness of shore and wave, even like his beacon, whatever his inward illumination may have been. It was a bright summer morning, remarkable even in the monotonous excellence of the season, with a slight touch of warmth which the invincible northwest trades had not yet chilled. There was still a faint haze off the coast, as if last night's fog had been caught in the quick sunshine, and the shining sands were hot, but without the usual dazzling glare. A faint perfume from a quaint lilac-covered beech flower, whose clustering heads dotted the sand like bits of blown spume, took the place of that smell of the sea which the odorless Pacific lacked. A few rocks, half a mile away, lifted themselves above the ebb tide at varying heights as they lay on the trough of the swell, were crested with foam by a striking surge, or cleanly erased in the full sweep of the sea. Beside, and partly upon one of the higher rocks, a singular object was moving. Pomfrey was interested, but not startled. He had once or twice seen seals disporting on these rocks, and on one occasion a sea lion, astray from the familiar rocks on the other side of the Golden Gate. But he ceased work in his garden patch, and coming to his house, exchanged his hoe for a telescope. When he got the mystery in focus, he suddenly stopped and rubbed the object glass with his handkerchief. But even when he applied the glass to his eye for a second time, he could scarcely believe his eyesight. For the object seemed to be a woman, the lower part of her figure submerged in the sea, her long hair depending over her shoulders and waist. There was nothing in her attitude to suggest terror or that she was the victim of some accident. She moved slowly and complacently with the sea, and even, a more staggering suggestion, appeared to be combing out the strands of her long hair with her fingers. With her body half concealed, she might have been a mermaid. He swept the foreshore and horizon with his glass. There was neither boat nor ship, nor anything that moved, except the long swell of the Pacific. She could have come only from the sea, for to reach the rocks by land, she would have had to pass before the lighthouse, while the narrow strip of shore which curved northward beyond his range of view he knew was inhabited only by Indians. But the woman was unhesitatingly and appallingly white, and her hair light even to a golden gleam in the sunshine. Pomfrey was a gentleman, and as such was amazed, dismayed, and cruelly embarrassed. If she was a simple bather from some vicinity hitherto unknown and unsuspected by him, it was clearly his business to shut up his glass and go back to his garden patch, although the propinquity of himself and the lighthouse must have been as plainly visible to her as she was to him. On the other hand, if she was the survivor of some wreck and in distress, or, as he even fancied from her reckless manner, bereft of her senses, his duty to rescue her was equally clear. In his dilemma, he determined upon a compromise and ran to his boat. He would pull out to sea, pass between the rocks and the curving sand spit, and examine the sands and sea more closely for signs of wreckage, or some overlooked waiting boat near the shore. He would be within hail if she needed him, or she could escape to her boat if she had one. In another moment, his boat was lifting on the swell towards the rocks. He pulled quickly, occasionally turning to note that the strange figure, whose movements were quite discernible to the naked eye, was still there, but gazing more earnestly towards the nearest shore for any sign of life or occupation. 
In 10 minutes, he had reached the curve where the trend opened northward, and the long line of shore stretched before him. He swept it eagerly with a single searching glance. Sea and shore were empty. He turned quickly to the rock, scarcely a hundred yards on his beam. It was empty, too. Forgetting his previous scruples, he pulled directly for it until his keel grated on its submerged base. There was nothing there but the rock, slippery with the yellow-green slime of seaweed and kelp, neither trace nor sign of the figure that had occupied it a moment ago. He pulled around it. There was no cleft or hiding place. For an instant his heart leaped at the sight of something white caught in a jagged tooth of the outlying reef. But it was only the bleached fragment of a bamboo orange crate cast from the deck of some South Sea trader, such as often strewed the beach. He lay off the rock, keeping way in the swell, and scrutinizing the glittering sea. At last he pulled back to the lighthouse, perplexed and discomfited. Was it simply a sporting seal, transformed by some trick of his vision? But he had seen it through his glass, and now remembered such details as the face and features framed in their contour of golden hair, and believed he could even have identified them. He examined the rock again with his glass, and was surprised to see how clearly it was outlined now in its barren loneliness. Yet he must have been mistaken. His scientific and accurate mind allowed of no errant fancy, and he had always sneered at the marvelous as the result of hasty or superficial observation. He was a little worried at this lapse of his healthy accuracy, fearing that it might be the result of his seclusion and loneliness, akin to the visions of the recluse and solitary. It was strange, too, that it should take the shape of a woman, for Edgar Pomfrey had a story, the unusual old and foolish one. We'll return to The Mermaid of Lighthouse Point by Bret Hart right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. Then his thoughts took a lighter phase, and he turned to the memory of his books, and finally to the books themselves. From a shelf he picked out a volume of old voyages and turned to a remembered passage. It went this way. In other seas do abound marvels such as sea spiders of the bigness of a pinnace, the which they have been known to attack and destroy, sea vipers which reach to the top of a goodly mast, whereby they are able to draw mariners from the rigging by the suction of their breaths, and devilfish, which vomit fire by night, which make it the sea to shine prodigiously, and mermaids. They are half fish, and half made of great beauty, and have seen of divers godly and credible witnesses swimming beside rocks, hidden to their waist in the sea, combing of their hairs, to the help of which they carry a small mirror of the bigness of their fingers." Pomfrey laid the book aside with a faint smile. To even this credulity he might come. Nevertheless, he used the telescope again that day. But there was no repetition of the incident, and he was forced to believe that he had been the victim of some extraordinary illusion. The next morning, however, with his calmer judgment, doubts began to visit him. There was no one of whom he could make inquiries but his Indian helper, and their conversation had usually been restricted to the language of signs or the use of a few words he had picked up. He contrived, however, to ask if there was a wagi, a white woman in the neighborhood. The Indian shook his head in surprise. There was no wagi nearer than the remote mountain ridge to which he pointed. Pomfrey was obliged to be content with this, 
even had his vocabulary been larger, he would as soon have thought of revealing the embarrassing secret of this woman, whom he believed to be of his own race, to a mere barbarian, as he would have asking him to verify his own impressions by allowing him to look at her that morning. The next day, however, something happened which forced him to resume his inquiries. He was rowing around the curving spot when he saw a number of black objects on the northern sands moving in and out of the surf, which he presently made out as Indians. A nearer approach satisfied him that they were wading squaws and children gathering seaweed in shells. He would have pushed his acquaintance still nearer, but as his boat rounded the point, with one accord they all scuttled away like frightened sandpipers. Pomfrey, on his return, asked his Indian retainer if they could swim. Oh, yes. As far as the rock? he asked. Yes. Yet Pomfrey was not satisfied. The color of his strange apparition remained unaccounted for, and it was not that of an Indian woman. Trifling events linger long in a monotonous existence, and it was nearly a week before Pomfrey gave up his daily telescopic inspection of the rock. Then he fell back upon his books again, and oddly enough, upon another volume of voyages, and so chanced upon the account of Sir Francis Drake's occupation of the bay before him. He had always thought it strange that the great adventurer had left no trace or sign of his sojourn there. Still stranger that he should have overlooked the presence of gold, known even to the Indians themselves, and have lost the discovery far beyond his wildest dreams, and a treasure to which the cargoes of those Philippine galleons he had more or less successfully intercepted were trifles. Had the restless explorer been content to pace those dreary sands during three weeks of inactivity, with no thought of penetrating the inland forest behind the range, or of even entering the nobler bay beyond? Or was the location of the spot a mere tradition as wild and unsupported as the marvels of the other volume? Pomfrey had the skepticism of the scientific, inquiring mind. Two weeks had passed, and he was returning from a long climb inland when he stopped to rest in his descent to the sea. The panorama of the shore was before him, from its uttermost limit to the lighthouse on the northern point. The sun was still one hour high. It would take him about that time to reach home. But from this coin of vantage he could see what he had not before observed, that what he had always believed was a little cove on the northern shore was really the estuary of a small stream which rose near him and eventually descended into the ocean at that point. He could also see that beside it was a long, low erection of some kind, covered with thatched brush, which looked like a barrow, yet showed signs of habitation in the slight smoke that rose from it and drifted inland. It was not far out of his way, and he resolved to return in that direction. On his way down, he once or twice heard the barking of an Indian dog, and knew that he must be in the vicinity of an encampment. A campfire, with the ashes yet warm, proved that he was on the trail of one of the nomadic tribes, but the declining sun warned him to hasten home to his duty. When he at last reached the estuary, he found that the building beside it was little else than a long hut, whose thatched and mud-plastered mound-like roof gave it the appearance of a cave. Its single opening and entrance abutted on the water's edge, and the smoke he had noticed rolled through this entrance from a smoldering fire within. Pomfrey had little difficulty in recognizing the purpose of this strange structure from the accounts he had heard from loggers of the Indian customs. The cave was a sweat-house, a calorific chamber in which the Indians closely shut themselves, naked, with a smudge or smoldering fire of leaves, until, 
perspiring and half suffocated, they rushed from the entrance and threw themselves into the water. The still smoldering fire told him that the house had been used that morning, and he made no doubt that the Indians were encamped nearby. He would have liked to pursue his researches further, but he found he'd already trespassed upon his remaining time, and he turned somewhat abruptly away. So abruptly, in fact, that a figure, which had evidently been cautiously following him at a distance, had not time to get away. His heart leaped with astonishment. It was the woman he had seen on the rock. Although her native dress now only disclosed her head and hands, there was no doubt about her color, and it was distinctly white, save for the tanning of exposure and a slight red ochre marking on her low forehead. And her hair, long and unkempt as it was, showed that he had not erred in his first impression of it. It was a tawny flaxen, with fainter bleachings where the sun had touched it most. Her eyes were of a clear northern blue. Her dress, which was quite distinctive in that it was neither the cast-off finery of civilization, nor the cheap government flannels and calicoes usually worn by the Californian tribes, was purely native, and a fringed deerskin, and consisted of a long, loose shirt and leggings worked with bright feathers and colored shells. A necklace also of shells and fancy pebbles, hung round her neck. She seemed to be a fully developed woman, in spite of the girlishness of her flowing hair, and notwithstanding the shapeless length of her gabardine-like garment, taller than the ordinary squaw. Pomfrey saw all this in a single flash of perception, for the next instant she was gone, disappearing behind the sweat-house. He ran after her, catching sight of her again, half doubled up in the characteristic Indian trot "'dodging round the rocks on low bushes "'as she fled along the banks of the stream. "'But for her distinguishing hair, "'she looked in her flight like an ordinary frightened squaw. "'This, which gave a sense of unmanliness and ridicule "'to his own pursuit of her, "'with the fact that his hour of duty was drawing near "'and he was still far from the lighthouse, "'checked him in full career, "'and he turned regretfully away. "'He had called after her at first, "'and she had not heeded him. "'What he would have said to her, he did not know. He hastened home, discomfited, even embarrassed, yet excited to a degree he had not deemed possible in himself. During the morning his thoughts were full of her. Theory after theory for her strange existence there he examined and dismissed. His first thought that she was a white woman, some settler's wife, masquerading in Indian garb. He abandoned when he saw her moving. No white woman could imitate that Indian trot nor would remember to attempt it if she were frightened. The idea that she was a captive white, held by the Indians, became ridiculous when he thought of the nearness of civilization and the peaceful, timid character of the digger tribes. That she was some unfortunate, demented creature who had escaped from her keeper and wandered into the wilderness, a glance at her clear, frank, intelligent, curious eyes had contradicted. There was but one theory left, the most sensible and practical one, "'that she was the offspring of some white man and Indian squaw. "'Yet this he found, oddly enough, "'the least palatable to his fancy, "'and the few half-breeds he had seen "'were not at all like her. "'The next morning he had recourse to his Indian retainer, Jim. "'With infinite difficulty, protraction, "'and not a little embarrassment, "'he finally made him understand "'that he had seen a white squaw near the sweat-house "'and that he wanted to know more about her. With equal difficulty, Jim finally recognized the fact of the existence of such a person, but immediately afterwards shook his head in empathetic negation. 
With greater difficulty and greater mortification, Pomfrey presently ascertained that Jim's negative referred to a supposed abduction of the woman, which he believed that his employer seriously was contemplating. But he also learned that she was a real Indian, and that there were three or four others like her, male and female, in that vicinity. That from a Skinamowicz, little baby, they were all like that, and that their parents were of the same color, but never a white or wagi man or woman among them. That they were looked upon as distinct and superior caste of Indians, and enjoyed certain privileges with the tribe. That they superstitiously avoided white men, of whom they had the greatest fear, and that they were protected in this by the other Indians. That it was marvelous and almost beyond belief that Pomfrey had been able to see one, for no other white man had, or was even aware of their existence. How much of this he actually understood, how much of it was lying and due to Jim's belief that he wished to abduct the fair stranger, Pomfrey was unable to determine. There was enough, however, to excite his curiosity strongly and occupy his mind to the exclusion of his books, save one. Among his smaller volumes, he had found a travel book of the Chinook jargon with a lexicon of many of the words commonly used by the Northern Pacific tribes. An hour or two's trial with the astonished Jim gave him an increased vocabulary and a new occupation. Each day, the incongruous pair took a lesson from the lexicon. In a week, Pomfrey felt he would be able to accost the mysterious stranger. But he did not again surprise her in any of his rambles, or even in a later visit to the sweat house. He had learned from Jim that the house was only used by the bucks, or males, and that her appearance there had been accidental. He recalled that he had had the impression that she had been stealthily following him, and the recollection gave him a pleasure he could not account for. But an incident presently occurred which gave him a new idea of her relation towards him. The difficulty of making Jim understand had hitherto prevented Pomfrey from entrusting him with the care of the lantern. But with the aid of the lexicon, he had been able to make him comprehend how it worked. And under Pomfrey's personal guidance, the Indian had once or twice lit the lamp and set its machinery in motion. It remained for him only to test Jim's unaided capacity in case of his own absence or illness. It happened to be a warm, beautiful sunset when the afternoon fog had for once delayed its invasion of the shoreline that he left the lighthouse to Jim's undivided care and reclining on a sand dune still warm from the sun lazily watched the results of Jim's first essay. As the twilight deepened and the first flash of the lantern strove with the dying glories of the sun, Pomfrey presently became aware that he was not the only watcher. A little gray figure creeping on all fours suddenly glided out of the shadow of another sand dune and then halted, falling back on its knees, gazing fixedly at the growing light. It was the woman he had seen. She was not a dozen yards away, and in her eagerness and utter absorption in the light had evidently overlooked him. He could see her face distinctly, her lips parted half in wonder, half with the breathless absorption of a devotee. A faint sense of disappointment came over him. It was not him she was watching, but the light. As it swelled out over the darkening gray sand, she turned as if to watch its effect around her, and caught sight of Pomfrey. With a little startled cry, the first she had uttered, she darted away. He did not follow. A moment before, when he first saw her, an Indian salutation which he had learned from Jim had risen to his lips. 
but in the odd feeling which her fascination of the light had caused him, he had not spoken. He watched her bent figure scuttling away like some frightened animal, with a critical consciousness that she was really scarce human, and went back to the lighthouse. He would not run after her again. Yet that evening he continued to think of her, and recalled her voice, which struck him now as having been at once melodious and childlike, and wished he had at least spoken and perhaps elicited a reply. He did not, however, haunt the sweathouse near the river again. Yet he still continued his lessons with Jim, and in this way, perhaps, although quite unpremeditatedly, enlisted a humble ally. A week passed in which he had not alluded to her, when one morning, as he was returning from a row, Jim met him mysteriously on the beach. "'Spose him come, slow, slow,' said Jim gravely, airing his newly acquired English. "'Make no noise. Plenty catchy, Indian maiden.' The last epithet was the polite lexicon equivalent of squaw. Pomfrey, not entirely satisfied in his mind, nevertheless softly followed the noiselessly gliding Jim to the lighthouse. Here Jim cautiously opened the door, motioning Pomfrey to enter. The base of the tower was composed of two living rooms, a storeroom, an oil tank. As Pomfrey entered, Jim closed the door softly behind him. The abrupt transition from the glare of the sands and sun to the semi-darkness of the storeroom at first prevented him from seeing anything. But he was instantly distracted by a scurrying flutter and wild beating of the walls, as of a caged bird. In another moment, he could make out the fair stranger, quivering with excitement, passionately dashing at the barred window, the walls, the locked door, and circling around the room in her desperate attempt to find an egress, like a captured seagull. Amazed, mystified, indignant with Jim, himself, and even his unfortunate captive, Pomfrey called to her and Chinook to stop, and going to the door, flung it wide open. She darted by him, raising her soft blue eyes for an instant in a swift, sidelong glance of half-appeal, half-frightened admiration, and rushed out into the open. But here, to his surprise, she did not run away. On the contrary, she drew herself up with a dignity that seemed to increase her height, and walked majestically towards Jim, who at her unexpected exit had suddenly thrown himself upon the sand in utterly abject terror and supplication. She approached him slowly, with one small hand uplifted in a menacing gesture. The man writhed and squirmed before her. Then she turned, caught sight of Pomfrey standing in the doorway, and walked quietly away. Amazed, yet gratified with this new assertion of herself, Pomfrey respectfully, but alas, incautiously, called after her. In an instant, at the sound of his voice, she dropped again into her slouching Indian trot and glided away over the sand hills. Pomfrey did not add any reproof of his own to the discomfiture of his Indian retainer. Neither did he attempt to inquire the secret of this savage girl's power over him. It was evident he had spoken truly when he told his master that she was of a superior caste. Pomfrey recalled her erect and indignant figure standing over the prostrate Jim, and was again perplexed and disappointed at her sudden lapse into the timid savage at the sound of his voice. Would not this well-meant but miserable trick of Jim's have the effect of increasing her unreasoning animal-like distrust of him? A few days later brought an unexpected answer to his question. 
It was the hottest hour of the day. He had been fishing off the reef of rocks, where he had first seen her, and had taken in his line, and was leisurely pulling for the lighthouse. Suddenly a little musical cry, not unlike a bird's, struck his ear. He lay on his oars and listened. It was repeated, but this time it was unmistakably recognizable as the voice of the Indian girl, although he had heard it only once. He turned eagerly to the rock, but it was empty. He pulled around it, but saw nothing. He looked towards the shore and swung his boat in that direction, when again the cry was repeated with the faintest quaver of a laugh, apparently on the level of the sea before him. For the first time he looked down, and there on the crest of a wave not a dozen yards ahead danced the yellow hair and laughing eyes of the girl. The frightened gravity of her look was gone, lost in the flash of her white teeth and quivering dimples as her dripping face rose above the sea. When their eyes met, she dived again, but quickly reappeared on the other bow, swimming with lazy, easy strokes, her smiling head thrown back over her white shoulder, as if luring him to a race. If her smile was a revelation to him, still more so was this first touch of feminine coquetry in her attitude. He pulled eagerly towards her. With a few long overhand strokes, she kept her distance. Or, if he approached too near, she dived like a loon, coming up astern of him with the same childlike, mocking cry. In vain he pursued her, calling her to stop in her own tongue, and laughingly protested. She easily avoided his boat at every turn. Suddenly, when they were nearly abreast of the river estuary, she rose in the water, and waving her little hands with a gesture of farewell, turned, and curving her back like a dolphin, leaped into the surging swell of the estuary bar, and was lost in its foam. It would have been madness for him to have attempted to follow in his boat, and he saw that she knew it. He waited until her yellow crest appeared in the smoother water of the river, and then rowed back. In his excitement and preoccupation, he had quite forgotten his long exposure to the sun during his active exercise, and that he was poorly equipped for the cold sea fog which the heat had brought in earlier, and which now was quickly obliterating sea and shore. This made his progress slower and more difficult, and by the time he had reached the lighthouse, he was chilled to the bone. The next morning he woke with a dull headache and great weariness, and it was with considerable difficulty that he could attend to his duties. At nightfall, feeling worse, he determined to transfer the care of the light to Jim, but was amazed to find that he had disappeared, and what was more ominous, a bottle of spirits which Pomfrey had taken from his locker the night before had disappeared too. Like all Indians, Jim's rudimentary knowledge of civilization included fire water. He evidently had been tempted, had fallen, and was too ashamed or too drunk to face his master. Pomfrey, however, managed to get the light in order and working, and then, he scarcely knew how, betook himself to bed in a state of high fever. He turned from side to side, racked by pain, with burning lips and pulses. Strange fancies beset him. He had noticed when he lit his light that a strange sail was looming off the estuary, a place where no sail had ever been seen or should be, and was relieved that the lighting of the tower might show the reckless or ignorant mariner his real bearings for the gate. At times he had heard voices above the familiar song of the surf and tried to rise from his bed, but he couldn't. Sometimes these voices were strange, outlandish, dissonant, in his own language, yet only partly intelligible 
but through them always rang a single voice, musical, familiar, yet of a tongue not his own. It was hers. And then, out of his delirium, for such it proved afterwards to be, came a strange vision. He thought that he had just lit the light when, from some strange and unaccountable reason, it suddenly became dim and defied all his efforts to revive it. To add to his discomfiture, he could see quite plainly through the lantern a strange-looking vessel standing in from the sea. She was so clearly out of her course for the gate that he knew she had not seen the light, and his limbs trembled with shame and terror as he tried in vain to rekindle the dying light. Yet to his surprise the strange ship kept steadily on, passing the dangerous reef of rocks, until she was actually in the waters of the bay. But stranger than all, swimming beneath her bows, was the golden head and laughing face of the Indian girl, even as he had seen it the day before. A strange revulsion of feeling overtook him. Believing that she was luring the ship to its destruction, he ran out on the beach and strove to hail the vessel and warned of its impending doom. But he could not speak. No sound came from his lips. And now his attention was absorbed by the ship itself. High-bowed and pooped, and curved like the crescent moon, it was the strangest craft that he had ever seen. Even as he gazed it glided on nearer and nearer, and at last beached itself noiselessly on the sands before his own feet. A score of figures as bizarre and outlandish as the ship itself now thronged its high forecastle, really a castle in shape and warlike purpose, and leaped from its ports. The common seamen were nearly naked to the waist. The officers looked more like soldiers than sailors. What struck him more strangely was that they were one and all seemingly unconscious of the existence of the lighthouse, sauntering up and down carelessly, as if on some uninhabited strand, and even talking, so far as he could understand their old bookish dialect, as if in some hitherto undiscovered land. Their ignorance of the geography of the whole coast, and even of the sea from which they came, actually aroused his critical indignation. Their coarse and stupid allusions to the fair Indian swimmer as the mermaid that they had seen upon their bow made him more furious still. Yet he was helpless to express his contemptuous anger, or even make them conscious of his presence. Then an interval of incoherency and utter blankness followed. When he again took up the thread of his fancy, the ship seemed to be lying on her beam ends on the sand. The strange arrangement of her upper deck and top hamper, more like a dwelling than any ship he'd ever seen, was fully exposed to view, while the seamen seemed to be at work with the rudest contrivances, caulking and scraping her barnacled sides. He saw that phantom crew, when not working, at wassail and festivity, heard the shouts of drunken roisterers, saw the placing of a guard around some of the most uncontrollable, and later detected the stealthy escape of half a dozen sailors inland, amidst a fruitless volley fired upon them from obsolete blunderbusses. Then his strange vision transported him inland, where he saw these seamen following some Indian women. Suddenly one of them turned and ran frenziedly towards him as if seeking succor, closely pursued by one of the sailors. Pomfrey strove to reach her, struggled violently with the fearful apathy that seemed to hold his limbs, and then, as she uttered at last a little musical cry, burst his bonds and awoke. As consciousness slowly struggled back to him, he could see the bare, wooden-like walls of his sleeping room, the locker, the one window bright with sunlight, the open door of the tank room, and the little staircase to the tower. 
there was a strange, smoky and herb-like smell in the room. He made an effort to rise, but as he did so, a small, sunburnt hand was laid gently yet restrainingly upon his shoulder, and he heard the same musical cry as before, but this time modulated to a girlish laugh. He raised his head faintly, half squatting, half kneeling by his bed, was the yellow-haired stranger. With the recollection of his vision still perplexing him, he said in a weak voice, "'Who who are you?' Her blue eyes met his own with quick intelligence and no trace of her former timidity. A soft, caressing light had taken its place. Pointing with her finger to her breast in a childlike gesture, she said, "'Me, Oloya.' "'Oloya!' He remembered suddenly that Jim had always used that word in speaking of her, but until then he had always thought it was some Indian term for her distinct class. Aloya, he repeated. Then with difficulty, attempting to use her own tongue, he asked, When did you come here? Last night, she answered in the same tongue. There was no witch-fire there, she continued, pointing to the tower. When it came not, Aloya came. Aloya found White Chief sick and alone. White Chief could not get up. Aloya lit witch-fire for him. You? he repeated in astonishment. I lit it myself. She looked at him pityingly, as if still recognizing his delirium, and shook her head. White Chief was sick. How can I know? Aloya made witch-fire. He cast a hurried glance at his watch hanging on the wall beside him. It had run down, although he had wound it the last thing before going to bed. He had evidently been lying there helpless beyond the twenty-four hours. He groaned and turned to rise, but she gently forced him down again, and gave him some herbal infusion, in which he recognized the taste of the yerba buena vine which grew by the river. Then she made him comprehend in her own tongue that Jim had been decoyed, while drunk, aboard a certain schooner lying off the shore, at a spot where she had seen some men digging in the sands. She had not gone there, for she was afraid of the bad man, and a slight return of her former terror came into her changeful eyes. She knew how to light the witch-light. She reminded him she had been in the tower before. "'You have saved my light, and perhaps my life,' he said weakly, taking her hand. Possibly she did not understand him, for her only answer was a vague smile. But the next instant she started up, listening intently, and then with a frightened cry, drew away her hand and suddenly dashed out of the building. In the midst of his amazement, the door was darkened by a figure, a stranger dressed like an ordinary miner. Pausing a moment to look after the flying Aloya, the man turned and glanced around the room, and then with a coarse, familiar smile, approached Pumphrey. I hope I ain't disturbing ye, but I allowed I'd just be neighborly and drop in, seeing as this is government property, and me and my partners, as American citizens and taxpayers, we helps to support it. We're coasting from Trinidad down here, and prospecting along the beach for gold in the sand. You seem to have a mighty soft berth of it here. Nothing to do, and lots of purty half-breeds hanging around, as I see. The man's effrontery was too much for Pompey's self-control, weakened by illness. It is government property, he answered hotly, and you have no more right to intrude upon it than you have to decoy away my servant, a government employee, during my illness, and jeopardize that property. The unexpectedness of this attack, 
and the sudden revelation of the fact of Pomfrey's illness in his flushed face and hollow voice apparently frightened and confused the stranger. He stammered a surly excuse, backed out of the doorway, and disappeared. An hour later Jim appeared, crestfallen, remorseful, and extravagantly penitent. Pomfrey was too weak for reproaches or inquiry, and he was thinking only of Aloya. She did not return. His recovery in that keen air, aided, as he sometimes thought, by the herbs she had given him, was almost as rapid as his illness. The miners did not again intrude upon the lighthouse, nor trouble his seclusion. When he was able to sun himself on the sands, he could see them in the distance at work on the beach. He reflected that she would not come back while they were there, and was reconciled. But one morning Jim appeared, awkward and embarrassed, leading another Indian, whom he introduced as a lawyer's brother. Pomfrey's suspicions were aroused. Except that the stranger had something of the girl's superiority of manner, there was no likeness whatever to his fair-haired acquaintance. But a fury of indignation was added to his suspicions when he learned the amazing purport of their visit. It was nothing less than an offer from the alleged brother to sell his sister to Bombry for forty dollars and a jug of whiskey. Unfortunately, Pomfrey's temper once more got the better of his judgment. With a scathing exposition of the laws under which the Indian and white man equally lived, and the legal punishment of kidnapping, he swept what he believed was the impostor from his presence. He was scarcely alone again before he remembered that his imprudence might affect the girl's future access to him. But by then it was too late. Still he clung to the belief that he should see her when the prospectors had departed, and he hailed with delight the breaking up of the camp near the sweat-house and the disappearance of the schooner. It seemed that their gold-seeking was unsuccessful, but Pomfrey was struck, on visiting the locality, to find that in their excavations in the sand at the estuary they had uncovered the decaying timbers of a ship's small boat of some ancient and obsolete construction. This made him think of a strange dream, with a vague sense of warning which he could not shake off, and on his return to the lighthouse he took from his shelves a copy of the old voyages to see how far his fancy had been affected by his reading. In the account of Drake's visit to the coast he found a footnote which he had overlooked before, and which ran as follows. The admiral seems to have lost several of his crew by desertion, who are supposed to have perished miserably by starvation in the inhospitable interior or by the hands of savages. But later voyages have suggested that the deserters married Indian wives, and there is a legend that a hundred years later a singular race of half-breeds, bearing unmistakable Anglo-Saxon characteristics, was found in that locality. Pomfrey fell into a reverie of strange hypotheses and fancies. He resolved that, when he again saw Aloya, he would question her. Her terror of these men might be simply racial or some hereditary transmission. But his intention was never fulfilled, for when days and weeks had elapsed, and he had vainly haunted the river estuary and the rocky reef before the lighthouse without a sign of her, he overcame his pride sufficiently to question Jim. Jim looked back at him with dull astonishment. Aloya gone, Jim said. Gone where? The Indian made a gesture to seaward, which seemed to encompass the whole Pacific. How? With whom? repeated his angry yet half-frightened master. With white man in ship. You say you no want a lawyer. Forty dollars too much. White man give fifty dollars. Take you a lawyer all same. 
Thanks for joining us for The Mermaid of Lighthouse Point by Bret Hart. A surprise twist for an ending, wasn't it? We always appreciate reviews for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. So if you have a chance, please take a few minutes and send us a kind review and get the year started off right. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.